This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. And so if you have a Bible with you, please open in it to the book of Psalms and turn to the 30th chapter, Psalm chapter 30. If you need a Bible, we want to make sure that everyone here has a copy of God's Word in front of them. So you can shoot your hand up in the air. Uh, Joe Cato would love to be able to give one to you. And so go ahead, don't feel bad about that. Take that as our gift to you today. This morning we are finishing our series that we've entitled, The Story Behind the Song. The book of Psalms is a book in the Bible that's all about these different songs that God's people wrote. And what we've been doing is not just going through the song itself, but really seeing what is the historical context in which that song was written. Because when we know the story behind the song, that song takes on an even deeper meaning in our lives. As we come to Psalm chapter 30, we we see that, that Psalm 30 has this subscript in it that says it was a song that was written to be sung at the dedication of the temple. Dedications are important moments. Dedications are when we mark a significant time and say that this is what this is about. And so we think about Washington's inaugural speech, which marked the dedication of the new government of the United States of America. And it was a speech that was emphasizing the importance of unity and democracy as the foundation of our country. We think about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which was given as a dedication at the memorial of that battlefield where soldiers died preserving our union. Our history is full of dedication speeches really marking significant moments of time. And that's what Psalm 30 is. It's a dedication speech that was going to be sung marking a significant moment. The moment when the temple of God was built. The temple being referred to here is the temple that was built in Jerusalem for Yahweh, the one and only true God. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt, in this place called the Holy of Holies, behind a curtain. It was the place where worshipers could go and, and pray to God, and where the priest would go in and make sacrifices for people's sins to atone for them before God. And so the temple was the place where heaven touched earth. The temple was the most sacred place in existence. And so what did God inspire David to write to dedicate such a place? And what can we learn from that for us today? Let's begin by reading the psalm together, and then we'll get into the story behind the song. Psalm 30 says to us, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, 
I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's prepare ourselves to hear God's word preached by just having a time of prayer between us and the Lord. Just bow your heads and just ask God to speak to you as his word is spoken today. And now please pray also for me that the Spirit would fill me because I can do nothing by myself. Please pray that I would be filled so that I might be of help to you and ultimately glorifying to God. God, we pray to you because we need you. Would you come and have your way with us? Speak to us through the preaching of your word that we might be edified, that your name might be glorified, and that your enemies might be horrified. Praise the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. In Psalm 30, we see just these beautiful contrasts. I needed help, and you healed me. I was in a pit, you restored me. I was weeping in the night, but joy came in the morning. I was mourning, yet you set me dancing. This psalm, on the one hand, is very honest about the hard realities of life. It's very honest about how we can be in desperate places where we need help. It's honest about how we can feel like sometimes our life is sinking down into a pit. It's honest about how we can weep. And how we can mourn. But in the midst of those hard realities, this psalm is holding out to us this hope. While pain might exist, it will not persist. No matter the depths of what we go to, God's arm is not too short to reach in and grab us and pull us out through his rescuing power. Pain exists, but it will not persist because for any of those who trust in the Lord as verse 5 says his favor is for a lifetime that word favor gets translated in the New Testament as the word grace grace is God's undeserved favor grace is God's goodness to us that is not earned by our good behavior grace is God being good to us and showing favor upon us in spite of us and all the wrongs that we can do. And so we might experience hardship and we might experience suffering and it might be particularly hard because it's suffering that's brought on by our own sin. 
It's one thing to suffer when you weren't expecting it through no fault of your own. It's another thing to suffer when you're reaping the consequences of your own poor choices. But what this psalm is telling us is that in all things, grace wins. That's why I've been told this morning's sermon, and that's the point that I pray God would drive home to our hearts. It's that simple phrase that honestly can change everything. It is that grace wins. That's the banner over every person's life who is truly a follower of God. The banner over our lives is that grace wins. Our pain might exist, but it will not persist because grace wins. And if we believe that, if we believe that grace wins, friends, that is a peace that can hold us in the midst of every worry. That is a joy that can ground us in the midst of every sorrow. And it's a hope that can keep us moving forward even in the midst of every hardship. Knowing that grace wins, well, it changes everything. So in order to flesh this out, let's consider the story behind this psalm. The story behind Psalm 30 is the events of 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and chapters 22. Because Psalm 30 was written for the dedication of the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and chapter 2. We see the reasons why the location for the temple was picked. We see the timing for when the temple would be built. And we also see who would build the temple. And so we see where the temple was built, we see when the temple was built, and we see who would build the temple. And in each of those things, we see why David would write a psalm that's all about how grace wins. So 1 Chronicles 21 begins by saying this Then the Lord stood against, then, excuse me, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. The story behind the song of Psalm 30 starts in a very dark place. It starts by saying that Satan, that fallen angel, that evil prince, the greatest of all human enemies, Satan had come against Israel. Friends, life is spiritual warfare. Satan had come against Israel and was inciting David to take A census. To incite means to tempt. We need to be clear. Satan can't make us do anything. But he can tempt us to do all kinds of things. Satan tempted David. And David chose to give in and to sin by numbering the people. Now what's so sinful about that? So sinful about taking a a sentence. Counting the people in your kingdom. Well for David there were two things that were sinful about this. First, is an expression of self-exaltation. David was counting in order to show off how great the kingdom had come under his leadership. He was counting the people in order to be able to brag about how many people 
that Israel had. He, he was taking pride in what he viewed as his accomplishments. How often we can look at our achievements and we can brag like they're our own, forgetting that all we have comes from God's hand. Like you might have worked hard for what you have. You might have worked very hard for it. But who do you think gave you the strength, the ability, and the opportunity to work hard for it? There's nothing we have that does not come from the hand of God. And yet David here is bragging like he had achieved it himself. He's expressing self-exaltation and he's expressing self-sufficiency. David's getting ready to go into battle. And so as he prepares to go into battle, he is counting the size of his army to see if his army will have the strength to defeat the enemies that have come against them. What David is forgetting is that Israel's victory in battle was never about the size and strength of their army. It was always about the size and strength of their God. And so David was not supposed to look to his own strength, but instead was supposed to be obedient and go out and do what God had commanded him to do and trust that God would provide the strength for David. This is David being very far from that time when he fought Goliath. Do you remember what David said when he fought Goliath, when he was just a young shepherd boy coming up against that big giant? He stepped forward and said, the battle belongs to the Lord. He was not counting on his own strength, but trusting in God's strength. And yet here, well, things are a little different. Here all of a sudden, the battle does not belong to the Lord. The battle must belong to David. And so he is looking to the size of his army instead of the strength of his God. Friends, when we read God's word and we see things that God has called us into, when we see the commands that God wants us to keep, that's not meant to lead us into assessment of, can I do it? Do I have the size and strength to be able to carry this out? Let me save you some time. You don't. But you have a God who does. Will we see the commands of God that's not meant to lead us into self-sufficiency? No, it's meant to lead us into desperate dependency. Lord, be my strength. Give me your strength to fight the battles I need to wage against my sin. Give me your strength to fight the battles I need to wage against the lies of the enemy. Give me the battles that I need to wage. Give me the strength for it to live for your righteousness. But here David's not living in dependency. He's living in self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. And through that, he is committing the sin of numbering his people. And did you notice that his general, Joab, tries to stop him? Joab says to him, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. I mean, like, God can make up whatever we need. We don't need to count them. God can do whatever he wants. He says, are you not all my king, my Lord's servants? They're going to do what you say because they, they trust God. He says, why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be cause of guilt? Israel. David, Joab is pleading with David, please don't give in to this temptation. And, and I just pause this point because I think we need to hear it, especially in our culture today. Joab is being a good friend by challenging his friend who is not obeying God. In our cultural moment, we need to hear that because we're told that being a good friend means affirming people no matter what they think or doing. It means saying that everything about you is fine. I'm not going to challenge everything. Our culture is saying that, well, love just means love. Like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it. If you, if you believe it, you feel it, I'm going to affirm it. But biblically, God does not call that love. Co-signing someone's sin is never love. 
Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Listen, friends, if you are never willing to say a hard thing to someone, then you are not that person's friend. But God's word would say you're actually being their enemy. That might not be your intent, but that is your effect. God's word tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If someone is engaging in something that God says is sinful, then the most hateful thing we can do is affirm them in that. Love means being willing to care enough about people to tell them the truth about God and what God says. Not in a judgmental way, but in a humble way, with an awareness that, like, I need God's word spoken into my life as well. Like, we don't speak judgmentally, and we always speak respectfully. Notice, Joab says, you know, David, my, my lord and my king, like, he's showing him tremendous respect. And yet he cares too much about David to keep silent. Friends, we need good friends in our lives to call us out when we're going down sinful paths. If you've never had anyone correct you for your sin, then you might need to get some better friends. We need good friends who can call us out, and we need to be good friends who call one another out. David does not listen, though, to the love of his friend. David hardens his heart and takes the sentence, census. And this is what we see happens as a result. What a tragedy. God's word goes on to say in verses 7 through 14, but God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly, and I have done this thing. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine, or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemy overtakes you, or else three days the sword of the Lord. Pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Friends, our sin always has consequences. The trap that sin wants to set for us is for us to feel like what we're doing is not that big a deal. Taking a census does not seem like that big a deal. David was just doing, honestly, what every other king was doing in that time. It was a common practice for kings to do. So you can imagine how he justified it. It's no big deal. This is a cultural norm. Everyone else is doing it. But friends, God does not call his people to be like everyone else. God calls us to be a people who are holy unto him. He calls us to be a pe people who are not defined by what our culture says is normal, but are defined by what God says about how we should live. And so this passage, friends, is meant to get our attention 
that worldly habits that we can write off as not that big a deal can have disastrous consequences. And those consequences usually don't stay contained just to ourselves. Tragically, sometimes the consequences of our sin don't just affect us, they can devastate others. For David's sin, he's given three options. Three years of famine on the land, three years of getting overrun by your enemies, or three days of God's sword. David chooses God's sword knowing that that's going to be better than even what these other people would do to him. David chooses God's sword and God sends a disease that wipes out 70,000 men. The strength that David had been boasting in was taken away. So much for his head count. It was taken away. The cost of these men's lives. And I'll be honest, we read that and I read that and I can be like, man, that, that does not seem fair to those people. They didn't sin. David did. So why they have to suffer. And there's lots of reasons for what's going on here beyond what I can get in to today, but really what we just have to see is the consequences of our sin don't just affect us. They can hurt others. And we need to be clear that David had been warned. And David had months and months to repent. Like Job had said, this is not a good thing. David says, you're going to do it anyways. It would have taken Joab months and months and months to count all those people. And so this is months and months and months of David hardening his heart. And now there's blood on his hands. David turns to God in verse 17. David said to God, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. Here David is finally taking responsibility for his sin. He is confessing his sin. He's offering to give himself so that the people might be spared. David is turning in repentance. And friends, the grace of God meets him there. The grace of God meets him there. Because what happens is God directs him to this threshing floor of a guy named Ornan, the Jebusite. And I don't think we have many threshing floors here in Philadelphia, so let's explain what they are. Threshing floor would have been like a little bit of a hill, a little bit of a mound that would build up, and you would take the wheat and you'd throw it up in the air. Uh, and, and all the, I guess, the, 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 the seeds and the things you wouldn't want in the wheat would fall down because it was heavier, and the wheat would come down separately. It would be a way to separate the wheat. It was their, basically their milling process back then. And so on that hill, God told David to make sacrifices to atone for his sin. And David did, and the plague stopped. And then this is what we read at the beginning of chapter 22, after David's made sacrifices, after he's repented to the Lord, after he's been forgiven by God's grace. On that hill, as he's standing there, we read, then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God. 
and hear the altar of burnt offering for Israel. The reason for where the temple was built was because it was the place that David had been met with grace. David chose the location of the temple not based on where he had experienced a great victory. This is not the battlefield where he had defeated Goliath. This is not Mount Horeb where he had been anointed as king. No, it's here at the threshing floor of Ornan. At this place where David had been broken of his pride. At the place where David had fallen down before the Lord and confessed his sin. And where God had met him with grace. It was here that the temple was built. It was here that the people would be able to come and make sacrifices to have their sins forgiven. The location of the temple was a continual reminder to God's people that God has met at the place of grace. And friends, while there is no longer a temple in Jerusalem, God is still met at a place of grace. Because Jesus says in John chapter 2, Verses 19 through 22, Jesus says that he himself is our temple. Jesus himself is the one who came and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And so in Jesus, there is a place where guilty sinners can find grace. In Jesus, there is a fountain that can wash away all our sins. In Jesus, there's a place where mercy and forgiveness reign and where peace and love are given in abundance. Friends, there is a place in Christ, our true temple, where we can experience the reality that grace wins. Where the temple was built shows that grace wins. And when the temple was built, shows that grace wins. Chapter 22 goes on to say this. Then he, meaning David, called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have said much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. The temple was not built during David's lifetime. David was a man of war, and God wanted his temple built by a man of peace. And so David did not build the temple. What David did was make preparations for the temple to be built because he believed God's promise that a temple would be built. And so as David writes Psalm 30 for the dedication of the temple... He's not writing because he sees a temple being built. and Like, oh man, this thing's going on pretty fast. I better figure out a good speech to say for these words. Like, no, 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 no. He's not writing this based upon what he sees happening. He's writing this based upon the promise of God that he's trusting. He's writing this believing that 
despite what else he's going to go through in this life, that ultimately grace is going to win and a temple would be built. He's not living based upon what he can see. He's living based upon what God had said. What do you live based on? What determines the state of your soul? Your outlook on life? What informs your mental well-being? Do you live based off what you can see? And so things are going well, you feel well. Things are going bad, you're down in the dumps. Do you live based off what you can see? Or what God has said? I was recently talking with someone who just became a pilot, and I was asking him about his training, because I was just fascinated by people who would fly machines off the ground and how they could possibly want to do that. Um, and it was just amazing to me, and, and there was many things he was telling me, but one of the things that he, he was talking about was how the, one of the most dangerous things they, they just drill into new pilots, one of the most dangerous things in flying is that when you get into a dense cloud and you can no longer see anything around you, it's really dangerous because we're just so used to being directed by what we can see. And so when you can't see anything, it's very easy to become disoriented and what is up actually look is what is down and that's what can lead to a lot of crashes. And so he told me that what they just drill into pilots during their training is that the pilots need to learn how to fly not based upon what they can see, but instead based upon what their instruments say because what their instruments are telling to them is more true than what they can see around them. Friends, when the disorienting clouds of life descend over us and we are having a hard time seeing what God is doing, we're having a hard time seeing our way through, what we need to learn is we need to learn how to live not based on what we need can see, what we need to learn to do is learn how to live based upon reading God's word and what he has said. This is our instrument, friends, and this is far more true than what we can see in our limited, finite perspective. What we might see can at times look fearful, but what God has said in Hebrews 13.5 is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we should not live based upon the fear we see, but live by faith in what God has said. He is here and he has not left us. What we see might be discouraging. But what God has said in Romans 8.39 is that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ. And so no matter what we see, we do not need to be dismayed. What we might see about our sin might make us just feel so trapped and hopeless and unable to even approach God. But what God has said in John 6.37 is that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And so no matter what we might see when we look in the mirror, we don't need to stay in our shame, but we can always run to our Savior. God has said in Romans 8.28 that he will work all things out for our good. God has said in Jude 25 that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his presence with great joy. God has said in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. 
See, friends, regardless of what we see, what God has said in his word is so much more true. God has given us these rich promises that, yes, weeping might exist, but it will not persist. And in Christ, every tragedy will be turned into a triumph, every brokenness into beauty, every regret into redemption, every pain into praise, every struggle into strength, every tear into a tapestry of amazing grace as the darkness of this world gives way to the dawn of the coming of our one true King, Jesus Christ. And my beloved friends, there is nothing that I want more for you than to know that God is more real and what he has said is far more true than anything you might see in your life right now. So often as Christians, we can believe things about God, but we don't fully live in the goodness of God because we, we, we kind of believe it, but we don't see it. And what we see is more real to us than what God has said. And as a result, we live trapped in shame. We live trapped in fear. We live trapped by chasing worldly things, thinking that they will satisfy us. We live trapped by so many things. Friends, we need to understand that there is freedom in Christ. There is freedom in knowing that what God has said in Jesus is more true than anything you possibly see in your life right now. The life of a Christian is not lived by what we see, it is lived by faith in what God has said. Friends, God's word is true. And David trusted God's promise that grace would win. He trusted what God had said. He trusted that the temple would be built. And so I'm just asking you this morning, what is God asking you to trust him for today? What is the thing that you see? And how does God want to reframe that in your life? And have you start living by what he has said? Where the temple was built shows the grace winds. When the temple was built shows the great winds. And who built the temple shows the grace winds. David takes his son Solomon and says that God told him that Solomon would be the one to build the temple. Does anyone remember where Solomon came from? That's right. A few weeks ago, we went through Psalm 51, which is a psalm of confession and repentance, right? Turning from sin, turning to God. And in that story, we saw that it was written because David had taken Bathsheba, who is not his wife, David had used his position of power to force her to sleep with him. In doing so, he got Bathsheba pregnant. And then to cover that up, he had her husband killed so he could take her as his wife. And so no one would know what he had done. In God's mercy, God took the life of that child. Because, David, because God did not want that child born in the shame of scandal. God also did that not only as a mercy to the child, he did it as judgment against David because anytime a child is taken, that is a tremendous heartbreak. David's first child was a child of judgment. But then God gave him a second child. The first was taken in judgment, the second was given by grace. And that child is Solomon. 
Solomon is a child of grace. He's a regular reminder to David that even David's worst moment was not the end of the story that God was writing. God does not sin. God is and always will be sinless. Yet such is the greatness of God's power that even in our sin, he can be at work to bring about his grace. God worked sinlessly through David's sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah. God worked sinlessly through that sin to bring about the son who would build his temple. And friends, this is the same God. He used the greatest sin ever committed, the murder of his one and only beloved, pure, and innocent son, Jesus Christ. This is the same God. He used that unspeakable sin to accomplish our salvation. So here's the good news for us, friends. The cross of Jesus shows us that our sin is never the end of our story. For any who trust in Christ, the end of our story is that we are not the children of judgment, but that we are children of grace. As I think about my life, in ways that I've sinned. I can't think about that too long because I'll just spend the rest of this time up here weeping over God's grace. Friends, if you're here and you're a Christian, your story's a story of grace. Your story's a story of amazing, stunning, scandalous grace accomplished by the beautiful work of Jesus Christ. Now, God does not give us grace that we can presume upon it and take him for granted and indulge in sin. No, we are to pursue being broken like David. We are to pursue turning to God in repentance. And so maybe you're here today and you're like David at the start of this story and you've been hardening your heart against God's warnings. Maybe God's even sent some Joabs in your life and you haven't been listening. I hope you are warned by the judgment that you see in what we've gone over today. Be warned. But friends, I hope you also are wooed by his grace. God warns us, and God woos us. You are not too far gone. You have not done too much. You might carry regrets, but in Christ there is a greater redemption. In Christ, the end of our story is that grace wins. And so we know that grace wins. Friends, that's what leads us to want to sing songs like Psalm 30. That's what leads us to want to say, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I will cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And extol means to be praising God with vibrancy. And when you have tasted and seen the sweetness of God's grace, this is what you do. 
and you don't even need a band. You don't even need anything. You just need to meditate upon God's grace. And as you do, your heart is filled with wholehearted thankfulness. David is praising God with spiritual vibrancy because he knows that God had not let his enemies triumph over him, even the enemies that existed within him, which those are our worst enemies, aren't they? David met God's grace, and so he anticipated continued and final victory. He believed that God would not abandon him even in death but that God's grace extends even beyond the grave. And for us who are living on this side of the cross, for us who know that God has not abandoned us to the death we deserve, but died our death on the cross that we might get his eternal life, for us who know that, yes, our bodies are decaying, but we will be healed and live with him forever, how much more should our hearts be bursting to extol the name of our God? And so we should say, verse 4 and 5, we should, we, should, we should sing praises to the Lord, O you as saints. Give thanks to his holy name for his angers for a lifetime. I'm sorry, his angers for a moment, his favors for a lifetime. Weep may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Listen, God might discipline us for a moment. We, we might temporarily feel some consequences for our wrong choices. But the sting of our sin is never meant to crush us. No, in the loving hands of God, the sting of our sin is always meant to turn us to him. Where we experience his grace that fars outweighs his discipline of us. So maybe you're here this morning and you have experienced some consequences for your sin. And it hurts and it stings. Friends, you need to hear from God's word that that weeping will turn to joy if you turn to Christ. Because in Christ, sin never has the final word. Grace wins. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you have made my mountain stand strong. You heard your face and I was dismayed. God's grace had led David to a place of strength. And then he became prideful and acted like he couldn't be moved. And so God's grace led David to experience God hiding his face from him. And when God did, that's when David saw where his true strength come from. And that was not done as an act of meanness, no, as an act of kindness. It's an act of kindness for God to reveal to us that our strength is not our strength. Our strength is the Lord's grace. It's the Lord's strength. And should the Lord hide his face, we would be dismayed. But praise God that he does not stay hiding his face. But he goes on to say in verses 8 through 12, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. helper. You have turned me, for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. Friends, the God of grace is the God that we can always go to and plead for his mercy. In God's grace, when we come to him for mercy, God never says enough. 
No, in his grace, he always says again. He always says, you can come to me again and again and again. As we come to God, the God of grace, in desperate awareness of our need for his mercy, as we come to God wearing the sackcloth of sadness and mourning, experiencing brokenness over our sin, it is then that as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, we realize we have a great need for Christ. And we realize we have a great Christ for our need. Jesus takes off the clothes of our sin and he gives us a new wardrobe. He clothes us in the gladness of our salvation in him and gives us the glory of being able to sing his praise. And so this is our glory, friends. Our glory is our story. Our glory is our story. It's the story that God has written over our lives. The story that God has written that in him, in Christ, and what he has done, Grace wins. And so as we come to a close, I just wonder, where do you today need to believe that grace wins? Maybe like Joab, you need to have a hard conversation and take a risk, believing that God can work as you love someone enough to say hard things. Grace wins. Maybe you need to listen to a Joab, someone who's been saying hard things to you, and you've been too scared to admit that it's true. But actually, in a place of brokenness, God wants to meet you with his healing grace. You need to believe that maybe it is true and trust that even in that, grace wins. Maybe there's a pain that you've been believing will always persist and always mark you. Friends, because grace wins, that pain might exist, but it will not persist. Your story is headed to glory in Christ. Maybe there are promises of God that you need to hold on to, believing in them more than what you can see. Maybe you need to trust that God's promises will come true because grace wins. I don't know where you need to hear it, but friends, I think we all need to hear this again and again and again. We need to hear that grace wins. And so I just want to lead us into considering this question. Where do you need to experience the grace of God in your life today? Where do you need to experience the grace of God in your life today? And how is God calling you to respond? David experienced grace, and then he responded by turning from his sin and pursuing righteousness. We truly experience grace. It never just stays with us. It always changes us. As David experienced grace, They responded by changing and turning his ways. And so, how is God calling you to respond to his grace today? Where do you need to believe in your life that grace wins? And then what do you need to do in light of that belief? Let's just bow our heads and have a word of prayer that God would reveal those things to us.